0: Hello everyone and welcome to CBA's At the Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of TAF Law, and co-hosting the pod with me today is Jen Byrne of the CBA. Hey Jen.
1: Hey John, how's it going?
0: Great especially because we are joined today by Dr. Marcus Funk, former federal prosecutor, former State Department Section Chief, former law professor at Oxford, Northwestern, and University of Chicago, current partner at Perkins & Cooey, and many, many other things of note, the most important of which is undoubtedly friend of the show. Regular listeners will remember Marcus from our episode about the prosecution of the Chicago outfit, and he's returned today to discuss his new book, Rethinking Self-Defense, The Ancient Rights Rationale untangled. Marcus, welcome back. Hey, good to be back with you guys. Thanks for coming. So Marcus, fantastic book. I read it over the course of last week. I thought it was fascinating. This should be required reading in every criminal law course in the country. And I say that not only because it's interesting, because it's really readable and accessible considering you're tackling some pretty heavy subjects here. Before we dive into the law, tell us why you wanted to write this book what you were hoping to accomplish to contribute to the conversation around self-defense
2: yeah there's sort of a, a practical answer to that and a uh, a little bit deeper answer the practical answer is that I uh, started working on and it's very kind of you to call me doctor I mean truly uh, this is going to get me uh, a lot of hard <laughs> times with all my friends who uh, who find that particularly funny when when people on occasion call me doctor um, And it's still a little bit fresh for me because I started my graduate school at Oxford in England back in 97. At one point, uh, I was told at one iteration of my dissertation, which was on self defense law, that if the thesis has a practical application, it's not an Oxford University uh, PhD kind of (laughs) worthy thesis. Okay. And I eventually just gave up on them, um, uh, and they gave up on me, and I kind of went into the wilderness and became a prosecutor and did all the other things, some of which you mentioned. I returned back to it because my dad really was disappointed that I never finished my uh, my thesis. And so in uh, in sort of the 2000s, I, I, I rebooted it again, it was some stops and starts, and uh, eventually wore them down. And, and so they, they finally gave me the... Uh, the title that I'd worked for or not worked for over the last two decades, and, and that happened last November. And so kind of circling back to your actual question, I wrote the book because that was the title of my my thesis, and I had actually gotten a book contract prior to even having the thing approved by Oxford. And so I wanted to make it a little more digestible and, and frankly deviate a little bit from the, if it's practical, then it's not that useful from, a, from an academic perspective, and actually make it practical. I found self defense law I like criminal law um, I think my kind of career choices show that and so I found self defense law particularly interesting kind of from a moral perspective you know where where does the mm-hmm. right uh, of the government come from to tell people when and they can and can't use deadly force are there limits to that ability by the government to to intercede there what are the values really that we're trying to protect when we have a self defense law and as I looked into you know, and I really focus primarily on American, uh, English, and German jurisprudence. And as I look into these three countries, I kind of was shocked to find that, particularly in the U.S., while we have a very consistent self-defense law, and I actually think a very defensible one, there's almost no discussion of the values, the underlying values that matter. In other words, when we talk about should a certain situation, whether that's Rittenhouse or, or, or Jose Alba or any other self-defense case, Bernie Gets you know, whether deadly force should be authorized in those cases, the discussion almost invariably becomes sort of on a very high level political or you could call it a moral discussion only if you're being very, you know, generous. And really, I thought, wow, I can't believe we don't have a dialogue that actually digs a little deeper into the values we're trying to protect. And so that's why I back in the 90s started looking at the topic. And it it just took me a bit to finally get my act together and, and get it finished. And then I you know was able to publish the book bloomsbury book not too long after getting the uh much sought after uh, piece of paper from england i'm
0: glad you did let's start out at a high level talk to us a little bit about the law of self-defense in the u.s generally specifically about like the spectrum of laws that are out there because i think one thing that may surprise people You said earlier that the law in the United States is remarkably consistent. I think the impression that most people have is that it varies a great deal from state to state. And they see cases like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in Wisconsin, the trial of Ahmaud Arbery's killers in Georgia, and they think the law is completely different in all these states. Walk us through the law generally, what it requires in most
2: states, what the underlying doctrines are. Sure thing. And, you know, the U.S. law sort of broad strokes is pretty consistent. I mean, it's consistent in that every state requires you, if if I'm going to claim self-defense, if I can make a colorable claim, if I can articulate a prima facie case of self-defense, then it's up to the prosecutor to, beyond a reasonable doubt, disprove my self-defense claim. And so basically, the parts that are the same everywhere is, for me to claim self-defense, I have to be able to persuade the fact finder, again, that's the government's burden, but let's just stay practical here. I have to persuade the, uh, the fact finder that I had a reasonable belief, objectively reasonable belief, that I was facing an imminent threat, uh, essentially like an immediate threat, and that my use of self-defense was reasonably necessary. That's where we get into proportionality, right? It was no more, no right. less than was required uh, in order to ward off that threat. Right, so in that sense, the laws in the different states are very similar. There's some differences when it gets to things like, and the, the big one you hear about the most is uh, stand your ground laws. Right, stand Those your ground laws are the most laws. controversial. Exactly, stand your ground laws, kind of a version of the castle doctrine, which r- relates to ha- the home, and stand your ground laws, and and the kind of the corollary to that is a duty to avoid places in which you are expecting to see. Um, uh, the need for self-defense really relate to, do I have to retreat if a safe retreat is is uh, available? So in about three quarters of the states, uh, there are stand your ground laws that say basically you even if you could safely retreat, you don't have to retreat. You can stand your ground, you can stay where you are. It's a little bit uh, of a kind of a vestige of the old English notion that you know that uh, you, you need never flee. Uh, to avoid a uh, conduct that a uh, you know a British gentleman doesn't need to flee and turn tails. That's sort of the way it was articulated back in Blackstone's days. About a quarter of the states do have a, a duty to retreat. In other words, if you can safely retreat, uh, you know you can come up with your hypothetical. I'm being attacked. I'm about to be attacked, but I'm right next to a door, an iron door that all I have to do is take you know step to my right, shut the door, mm-hmm. and I'm safe. Uh, in other words, a safe retreat. If I can have a safe retreat then I I need to do that. I can't just use deadly force. And so that's the big difference between states. Like I said, about a a quarter require safe retreat, about three quarters have stand your ground laws. So that's that's one of the big ones. Another one is provocation Uh, in some states and notably Wisconsin. That's, you mentioned Rittenhouse. In Wisconsin, in order to trigger pro- the provocation exception. In other words, you can't provoke a situation and then claim the right to self-defense. I can't just do something that puts me in a situation where I then can can use uh, deadly force. And in the Rittenhouse case, what the prosecutors completely overlooked, perhaps because they're ignorant of the law, perhaps because they knew... Uh, they were having problems, is that you have to do something that would provoke other people, and that thing has to be unlawful, quote unquote, right? Unlawful. In other words, a tort or a crime. Uh, Under Wisconsin law. So they would have to prove, they had to prove that Rittenhouse provoked the attack. And that means that he was doing something that would cause other people to act the way they did. And it was because he did something unlawful. Nowhere during the opening or closing statements uh, does the word unlawful ever come up uh, at all. And so, you know, as anyone who's been a prosecutor or defense attorney knows, you know, your job is to meet the elements of the case. And if one of the elements is to prove unlawfulness, you've got to show what Rittenhouse did that was unlawful. And that's where they completely dropped the ball. And I, you know, I think you can have opinions about whether or not, you know, that case should have resulted in a, an acquittal or conviction. And uh, I can see arguments on both sides. But I, one thing that I don't think can be argued is that the prosecutors bungled that case pretty badly.
1: Talking about Rittenhouse... I mean, if you were handling that case as the prosecutor, how would you have done so differently?
2: Well, of course, look, I mean, one of the great dangers when you're in sort of the business we're in right now is is second guessing. Now, I've already second guessed, so I might as well go down that, that path a little bit further. I mean, I mean I think Marcus. The, you open the
1: door, walk right in it. <laughs> right. You're, right.
2: You're, you're,
0: you're talking to an appellate lawyer. That's all I do. So right, all right, okay. <laughs> lay
2: it on me. <laughs> So I think the, I mean, it's, it's really the big thing is that they talked about, I spoke about provocation in a very colloquial sense. You know, he was acting like a jerk. He was walking around with his bulletproof vest and his baseball cap and his machine gun acting like he was Rambo. You know, he could have just let them hit him and he could have fought with fists like we used to do in the high school. This is the prosecutor saying this, you know. That is all good and well, If that, that may be sort of a rhetorical uh, twist, but fundamentally, you don't get around the elements, right? So even if they convicted him, had they convicted him, he'd have had a great appellate argument, which is at no point did they prove unlawfulness. In fact, they didn't even try to prove it. They never even used the word unlawful in closing or in rebuttal. And so um, you can have other gripes about the style uh, in which uh, some of these cases were being handled. Those on the margins really fall away, but I think the, a big one and a big one that was almost completely overlooked is the fact that they just didn't use the term unlawful. I got the uh, transcripts. I I had to actually we had to send a courier out to get them of the closing because they weren't available online or anywhere else. And i thought for sure that there'd be a that I dismissed it that there would be some discussion of unlawfulness of, of his conduct. And they could have said he was creating a public disturbance, or there are there, there, things or they could have assault argued,
0: maybe right, getting in people's face with a yeah, yeah. They gun. I mean, look,
2: there are arguments to be made, right? It's always hard to second guess a jury or a fact finder, but but just from a purely law, an order and law perspective, they didn't even try. And if you don't try, then you know, in our system of justice, uh, you typically aren't supposed to win. And so, how they would have been able to sustain a conviction without even addressing this key element is is puzzling to me. I'm sure every case I've ever tried, a bunch of folks could get together and say, hey, he really screwed this up, that up, the other thing up. But here we have a combination of a case that was lost, a very high-profile case that caused great outrage. And a case like that deserves a hard look at kind of what was done. And uh, no matter whether you think uh, Rittenhouse was you know, justified or not justified, it almost doesn't matter, at least in, maybe to these days it does matter, it shouldn't matter what should matter is that you have elements that you have to prove in our system of justice and that when you don't even mention an element, then, you know, you you didn't prove it.
0: So there's no shortage of high-profile cases that deal with this topic, which is why I think it's going to be really interesting for our audience. You were just discussing Rittenhouse. There's, go back about a decade, you've got George Zimmerman and Trevon Martin, Ahmad Arbery, I think if I read it correctly the defendants in that case just received two of them just received life sentences on so on a hate crime violation on top of their prior convictions. Jose Alba in New York was making a lot of headlines prosecutors recently decided to drop those charges. Let's break down Ahmad Arbery a little bit because sure. I think that's one that particularly drew a lot of nationwide attention. What are your thoughts on the way that case was handled?
2: Yeah, look, I thought that and I thought this from the beginning. I, I remember spending a fair amount of time watching that video, uh, which is obviously a very disturbing video of of Arbery kind of jogging along and then taking a right as uh, the father and son duo are are basically getting their guns out and he kind of jogs around the car and then and then grabs tries to grab the the gun of the son the shotgun and then gets shot. To me. Under Georgia law, that was a clear case of Mod Arbery engaging in self-defense, justified self-defense. He was being threatened with kidnapping or worse. He was being threatened with a firearm. There was no justification for it. And so he was—he would have been entitled to just shoot the son, but he didn't. He just tried to grab his gun. And so once you're justified, there's a, a thing called uh, the Doctrine Against Mutual Justifications. Once Arbery was justified in using defensive force, the son was not authorized or justified to use it, and so he couldn't right. shoot. And so, to me, it was very clear that those two men should be prosecuted. And I said so much, uh, both in an article I wrote as well as in an interview I gave to uh, the the Washington Times, uh, Washington Post, rather. I thought that that was a very strong case. Again, never know what the jury is going to do, but a really strong case uh, against the two men who claimed that they were. Essentially trying to apprehend someone who had broken into or trespassed on a on a construction zone, residential construction zone. So I thought Arbury was rightly decided. Yeah, that was my take on that case. So let's
0: just compare the two that we've discussed before, because I, I think a little bit of details worth it for our audience. What distinguishes the Arbury case from the Rittenhouse case? Because just on the on the surface of it, you have situations where someone is confronted with a gun. And in the Rittenhouse case, the person with the gun was allowed to claim self-defense. In the Arbery case, it went the other way. What separates the two? Because I think there is a fairly sharp difference between them.
2: Yeah, the two are very different cases. I'll I'll just sort of, in broad strokes again, the Rittenhouse case involved a defendant who made a claim of self-defense. It was now up to the prosecutor to disprove that self-defense claim. One way they could have disproven it is to show... That Rittenhouse had provoked the the uh, conflict, and they just didn't do it, and they couldn't do it because they didn't even mention the. Well, they could do it, but they, under their argument, they didn't even mention the key element of provocation, which is unlawfulness. Yeah. So in that case, it was basically the prosecutor's not meeting the elements of the offense. In the Arbery case, there was no really no plausible self defense argument for the father and son duo to make. Because they went looking for the trouble. They, yeah, right? they went looking for the guy that they thought they could apprehend using a firearm. Right. They were wrong about that, right? And, and as we know, ignorance of the law is no excuse in this context, at least. So they thought they were authorized to hold him at gunpoint. They were not. And in fact, what they did by pointing a gun at him was threaten him with deadly force, which authorized right. him— to in turn use force against them. So right. they were never justified in doing what they did. And so the real question there was whether when they were trying to apprehend him, you know, there's a special rule about trying to apprehend a burglar and you've got to have you know, essentially firsthand knowledge and, and they just didn't have that. They didn't have the requisite information to be able to act in the way they did. So in their case, there was ignorance of the law and it, they just didn't have a justification. They never did and therefore... Their murder of Arbery was, in fact, a murder, not just a killing.
1: That was going to be my question is, you know, what circumstances would have had to been present for them to be justified and in, in taking the steps that they did?
2: Yeah, if they I, and now I'm going back into the memory banks a little bit on Arbery, but if they had seen. Arbury, let's say break in to the uh, construction area there was a lot of evidence that a lot of people went in there very regularly there's video of Arbury walking around inside but he doesn't seem to be stealing anything but here they were told that he did that and they they had some video cameras up or some neighbors put some cameras up they just didn't have the predicate knowledge of unlawful conduct by Arbury to be able to to affect essentially what effectually is a citizen's arrest
0: so let's go over to the jose alba
2: Mm.
0: case because that got a lot of headlines in new york i'm not sure how many headlines it got outside of the new york metro area my understanding of the basic facts were there was a convenience store cashier there was a woman inside the store who was purchasing a bag of chips but didn't have money for them they got in a verbal altercation about it the woman's boyfriend came back behind the counter pushed the cashier mr alba down on the ground standing over him and threatening him but was not armed, and Alba stabbed him and claimed self-defense. Walk us through that case a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really, if you watch the video, really, uh, again, all these cases are tragic, right? I mean, they, you all, they're all tragic cases. The Alba case, I think, the district attorney should have never charged. He charged Alba with second-degree murder. And the reason he shouldn't have charged him is not, I, I don't think... I, This is, again, my perspective on this. I don't think that Jose Alba had a strong argument that he feared death or serious bodily injury at the hands of his attacker. Rather, the argument that he had was, there's in New York, there's a law that says, essentially, if you are in a dwelling or in a business and someone either breaks in or exceeds their authorization— in other words, goes in a place they're not allowed to go with the intent to commit a crime therein, you can use deadly force. And here, Alba was in his little kind of little area, the cashier area that was enclosed, you know, had like the glass partition, was open on the side, but was not open to the public. So when his attacker came around and pushed him and assaulted him, clearly Alba was justified under New York law. In using deadly force to not defend himself in sense of of his own person, but he under the law his attacker was trespassing, was committing a crime or about to commit a crime, assault and battery, in that place, and therefore Alba had you know almost a foolproof uh, defense argument. But again, you know the media focus was all on whether when he was being assaulted, whether Alba really feared for his life. And Mm -hmm. in that regard, you know, New York law is pretty standard, but you have to have some, you know, either death or serious bodily injury is what you have to fear. And, you know, it's a harder argument for Alba's defense team to make that that's what his fear was. The stronger argument, again, was the preventing a crime in an area that this other guy didn't have an authorization to be in.
1: As to the facts, the female in that case was armed, though, if I'm not mistaken, because he suffered stab wounds from some kind of weapon that she was— using to, I don't know, break up the argument purportedly. But if you watch the video, (laughs) it's pretty clear that he had no escape from that situation and could have maybe made the argument that he reasonably feared for his life based on the fact that she was armed, no?
2: Well, no. Um, uh, No in the following sense. He didn't know she was armed, right? So when he stabbed his attacker in the neck seven times, I think, at that point, you know he was facing he he never saw her coming it's only after the whole thing is over that he looks at his arm and sees it's cut and it emerges that the the girlfriend had been stabbing him as well so you know he has to have a reasonable what we call internal and external justification he has to be externally justified by the facts like the facts as they were but he also had to believe that that was happening so if i shoot mm-hmm. someone and and I, just because I want to kill him, and unbeknownst to me, that person had a gun under his coat and was actually just about to shoot me, I can't claim self-defense. Because even though it was self-defense in terms of externally, right, the facts are that had I not shot him first, he would have shot me. I didn't know about that. And so I can't claim self-defense here. Uh, I shouldn't say flat no to you, Jen. I, su- I should just say that I think that Alba would have a hard time proving that he was, stabbing his attacker seven times because he was also being attacked from behind by a woman uh, with a knife when he didn't even know she had a knife and probably didn't even know what was going on in the heat of the moment. So yeah, he can always make I don't think he can make a very good deadly force that he was I mean that he was facing death. He I think he has a stronger argument that he was facing serious bodily injury, but it's not a dead bang winner. You can see a prosecutor going either way on that one. But where the prosecutor, I think, had the fatal sort of flaw in his theory, D.A. Bragg, the district attorney, was on this this sort of odd law that says you can essentially stop a crime from happening in an occupied dwelling or in a business or where someone is exceeding their, you know, is essentially trespassing into an area they don't have a right to be. That would have been, if I were the defense attorney there, would have been certainly what I would hang my hat on. Now, we don't know what ultimately persuaded the prosecutor to drop the charge public pressure, a realization that, you know, they kind of cocked things up early on, but, you know, ultimately they made the right decision from my perspective. You said that New York's
0: law was a little odd. You also said earlier that one of the things that was uniform throughout the states was a sense of proportionality, but here, mm-hmm. Alba wasn't meeting his attacker with a proportionate amount of force. How come in is that New York law throughout the
2: states? I mean, the New York law, the law that you can use deadly force to stop a forcible felony or rape, or in other words, things are not necessarily going to result in in death, that you can stop uh, uh, burglaries and robberies. Those are pretty common. In other words, mm. they have sort of add-ons. You know, you can use deadly force to protect your life or avoid being seriously injured. Or to stop and then they insert a list of specific crimes that are viewed as being a like, kidnapping is another one or arson uh, that is sort of aggravated. Those those are fairly common. And again, I mean, one of the things, you know, that's notable, I think, in this whole conversation about self-defense is that in all of the media reporting on these cases, you would come to the conclusion. And, and if you ever have a, you know, sit down with people just at a cocktail party and ask them, well, what do you think about American self-defense law? You're going to hear Oh, it's the Wild West. I mean, and you can watch whether it's Fox or MSNBC or CNN, you'll have commentators talk about how we in America have this crazy self-defense law that allows, you know, deadly force willy-nilly. It's the Wild West. It's it's really unregulated and barbaric. And that is just wrong. And here's why. Everything else I've said, hey, this is an opinion, you could have two different views on it. It's factually incorrect because For example, we talked about stand-your-ground laws that are existent in the majority of American states. The same stand-your-ground laws exist in countries that are culturally, uh, that are legally super diverse, such as Japan, France, Germany, England, Indonesia, Ghana, Sweden. All of those countries have stand-your-ground laws. We have the requirement that we talked about earlier that you have to have an objectively reasonable belief that you're being attacked. Well, in England, you don't have to have that. You just have to subjectively and honestly believe you're being attacked and you can use deadly force. So let's say Bernie Goetz case, good example. Let's say I'm a kind of a a fearful, uh, not particularly imposing guy. It's just sitting around and all of a sudden some guys come up to me and ask me for money. Well, if it was the three of us, we'd say either here's some money or no or whatever, but we wouldn't necessarily feel like we're being exposed to a deadly attack. In Getz's case, if he could have, if this the Getz case happened in in, in the UK or in England, I'd rather, if he could persuade a jury that he believed, honestly believed, these guys were about to attack him and kill him, he would have had a complete defense. So we in, in the U.S. have a, which is a really high burden to overcome, right? If you want to claim self-defense, the prosecutor has to disprove these elements, but ultimately, the proof has to be that you reasonably believed and subjectively also believed. Like I really believed it, plus it was a reasonable belief that I was about to be killed. So if you look at the Jose Alba case, if the Jose Alba case happened, if it went to trial, the whole debate would be about whether Jose Alba's belief that he was being attacked and that he was about to be killed was reasonable. And you'd get into the difference in size or you'd get into what the girlfriend said about like how her boyfriend was going to kick his ass or all that kind of stuff would come in. If this happened in the UK or rather in England, the only question would be, did Alba honestly believe he was about to be killed or seriously injured? If the answer is yes, complete defense, right? Germany, another country uh, that uh, a lot of people study. And, and and again, there's this sort of, we have a bit of a, and I, I say this as maybe you can tell from my slightly nasal accent. I grew up in Germany until I was 18 and I'm a German-American dual national. But in Germany, you can use deadly force to protect property, right? Can't do that. No state in America says purely to protect property, right? So if I have a Macintosh computer or IBM or whatever sitting at my desk and I have two broken legs and someone breaks in the house, says, screw you, I'm taking this, I'm going to give this to my buddies, takes it and runs out the door and I have a shotgun in my hand. No way in America would they say you can shoot the guy in the back as he's running out of the house in order to uh, get your property back. Or if this happened in the public area is even more clear. I mean, there's always a castle doctrine arguments, but if you're just outside and someone steals your stuff, you're just out of luck, right? In Germany, on the other hand, you can use deadly force to protect property interests. And it has to, as long as it's not trivial, right? As long as it's a legally protected, non-trivial property interest, you can use deadly force if it's necessary to protect that interest. The paradigm case, one that's this couldn't happen this way anymore, but the Paradigm case is an old case where a farmer, old man with a shotgun and his dog was walking and saw a bunch of kids stealing his fruit from his tree. And he yelled at them and they all hopped down and one of the kids carried on his shoulder a bag of the fruit, like he didn't drop the fruit on the ground, He he ran away with it. The old man, the old farmer takes a shotgun, shoots the kid in the back, kills the kid. And the Supreme Court says, well, it's too bad, but, you know, we can never let the wrong triumph over the right. So we're not going to get in the business of saying proportionality and how much property. And the kid shouldn't have stolen the, the stuff. Had he not stolen it, he wouldn't have gotten shot. The only way for the farmer to get his belongings back, his fruit back, was to shoot the kid. And so that's the result, right? The farmer was completely justified. That was in Germany? That was in Germany. And now that case couldn't happen when? in the same uh, 1930s. Yeah, they had interesting
0: opinions about who. other. yeah, kill they Germany had a lot of the they, had, they had a
2: lot of evil um, uh, viewpoints emerging. and And frankly, historically, you know, they're I mean, the German scholarship is is amazing about these topics. But what mm. they post-war, you know, and they even I mean, it's funny when you read the opinion, they have these famous commentators, famous German professors who are like, Essentially saying, yeah, yeah, this would just be the way people think in these wimpy days, that you should let criminals get away with it, you know, but a robust <laughs> society needs to fight criminality and, and therefore, again, the right need never yield to the wrong. Now, obviously, in Germany, the, uh, the wrong triumphed for a long time. But what ultimately happened after the war is they introduced what are called socioethical limitations. And they said, hey, this is a little crazy what we're doing here. Because the old law was actually they had German professors who would said, hey, if someone steals a matchstick. And the only way you can get it back is shooting the person, then, hey, shouldn't have stolen that matchstick. And eventually, the, the majority view, as, as they refer to it in Germany, came around to an understanding that that's just a little bit harsh and that there has to be some, have to be some limitations. But you can still, to this day, use deadly force to protect property. So, I mean, my, my point is just by these explicit examples that this sense we have in the U.S., that we have these crazy laws and that these civilized folks over in you know, Sweden and Germany and France and England, that they would not allow this type of thing to happen, right, is totally wrong. I mean, it's as simple as that. I have yet to find a country with more restrictive self-defense laws than the United States. There are other countries that have similarly restrictive laws, but I can't think of a country that has more restrictive laws. Now, that's not to say, and this is obviously the big elephant in the room, which is guns, right? I mean, in America, we have the ability to use deadly force in a way that they don't have in a lot of other countries. And so, you know, the ability to use deadly force is is heightened. And so we have some cases that are the headline grabbers we talked about, but the law, America's law is actually very, I mean, the worst you could say about it is it's mainstream. The best you can say about it is it's actually very restrictive.
0: And I want to go there. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Marcus, we were just talking about what you view as a misconception about the American law of self-defense, that you know the world sees us essentially as having a cowboy culture, for lack of a better term, where you can shoot someone dead in the street you know, at high noon because they insulted you. And you were explaining that a lot of other countries actually have much more lax self-defense laws, especially in Western Europe, which I think would surprise a lot of our listeners. And then you mentioned, and that's exactly where I wanted to go with it, What's the difference between those countries and this country in terms of why do we seem to have so many more instances of high publicity cases involving claims of self-defense? Like what makes America exceptional in this conversation? And you identified that as guns. Or are we? Yeah. But you identified the problem as guns. So is that – that's the big problem when people exercise the right of self-defense in England, in Germany, in Sweden. They're
2: not doing
0: it with a firearm?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, there's some interesting statistics about violent crime in the United States and violent crime in Europe, how, for example, burglaries are much more likely, the burglar is much more likely to kill the occupant of a house in, let's say, Germany or England than in the United States, in part because people are afraid of people having guns. So they try to only break in when people aren't around. Whereas in in England and Germany, we see many more intrusions into, into dwellings when people are in the house just because they figure, well, we're four big guys and we'll be able to subdue the uh, you know, older people in the house, that kind of stereotypical case. So there, there are all sorts of interesting statistics. You know, I think part of it is, and you know, I, I wish I could speak a whole bunch of languages and follow the, uh, the media in a bunch of different countries. I tend to follow the media in Germany. And in England, and in both of those places, I mean, self-defense laws. Everyone has an opinion about self-defense, right? People mm-hmm. may not have a strong opinion about, you know, intellectual property laws or uh, any number of other legal provisions that we deal with every day as lawyers. Self-defense. I mean, it doesn't matter what level of education you have; you're going to have some strong opinions about whether in a certain case self-defense should or shouldn't be authorized. And I think it's because, and I refer to it in the book as the ancient right, which is what the philosophers called it. It is sort of, some people call it the first civil right, right? The right to live and the right to defend your life is the first civil right we have as people. And so I think you'll see in Germany, there are super high profile cases about self-defense where people claim self-defense and uh, and there's a big national debate over whether it should be justified. In England, there was a recent case involving a constable, a police officer, a female police officer who um, basically beat a former professional football player to death. And uh, I don't think anyone argues that it was objectively reasonable for her to do that. But she, again, remember we're in England where it's just, did I honestly believe it? She persuaded or was trying to persuade the uh, fact finder that she honestly believed this footballer when he was laying on the ground was still a threat to her. Almost a Rodney King type uh, situation. And there are also elements of race in that case that have drawn uh, more media focus to it. You know, I think self defense cases, no matter where you are, uh, in the local media draw a tremendous amount of attention. I don't think a whole lot of people were talking about any of the cases we talked about in Germany or China or Japan, but in America, they were hot button, you know, flashpoint cases where people are outside protesting for and against. Same thing is true, I think, in Germany, in England, China, Japan, everywhere where you have human beings, you know, engaging in in conduct of this kind. It just brings a visceral reaction out with people.
0: So what you just said brought two things to mind, and I don't know which direction to go in, so I'm just going to lay them out and you decide. One is the laws that we've been discussing here, do the same laws, rules, regulations apply to police officers, or are they a little different? And two, in those countries where you have a subjective standard... Is the practical effect of that in some circumstances to essentially give people a license to kill because of perhaps conscious or unconscious biases or racist beliefs? We've all seen the, the statistics where people disproportionately believe that you know young black men in America are more dangerous than any other demographic. So if it's a purely subjective belief system in a country like England and you have someone who believes that, Despite the fact that it's not true, could that have a disproportionate effect on populations that are discriminated against? I, I know that's not a fully formed thought, but I think you know what I'm trying to get at.
2: Yeah, I totally know what you're trying to say, John. I do think it's a fully formed thought. I'll take it sort of in reverse order. I'll start with this the possibility that conscious or unconscious biases may creep in even more than they already do. You know, I mean, we as a justice system don't have the best track record in the US, and for that matter, most countries, for being sensitive to the racial impact of, of some of our laws. And we're trying to do better, but obviously a lot of work needs to be done. I think when you have a law that is purely based on an honest belief, so you could have someone who's let's say a racist or someone who has irrational beliefs about, you know, you right. name it, right? Any, any group of people, as long as they can persuade a jury that they honestly believed it, that's all that matters. So if you happen to be that's super just, that's fearful— That's so perverse. You, you have yeah. to convince the jury that you're honestly racist in yeah, order you, well, to— well, I mean, you wouldn't do it that way, right? You would say something like, well, you know, she grew up in a, a well healed environment and, and wasn't really exposed to the urban lifestyle. You know, there'd be all these yeah that's, it's, what it's, it's, what a, it's a veil it's, argument, but that's, right? But that's what it is. Yeah, fundamentally—and you're really doing two things, right? You're letting a person with racial biases— actually use those racial biases as a defense. Right. And you're speaking to the racial biases potentially, and I say racial, it could be other biases too. Of the be, jury. Of the jury to say, hey, you know, hey, look, guys, we're like, this guy attacked me. We're all like, I, I really believe this guy's going to threaten me and here's why. And yeah, so I think there's a tremendous, and I wrote about this. I have a forthcoming article with, with Columbia you know, of European law, and, and it talks about this. I mean, it I think it is a tremendous risk. Now, I don't think any empirical studies have been done on this. I don't know how they could, frankly. But mm-hmm. I think there's a tremendous risk that that would creep in. So on that point, I think it's crazy, okay? I really do. I mean, I, I've studied these laws fairly heavily. I've written on, particularly on England's law quite a bit. I think it's a really bad idea to have a law that is purely based on someone's subjective belief. Now, on the police side... I mean, I'll speak in generalities because it gets really nuanced, but the big question in the US, the US basically the answer is technically no, there are no special laws for the police versus regular citizens. There's some different laws when it comes to when you can detain people and so forth. And though, In other words, the situation that will lead and escalate up to a deadly confrontation is more likely to happen with the police who can say, hey, you've gotta stop and I'm gonna to talk to you. And then the person says no, and then they kind of escalate up a fight in a way that a normal citizen typically can't do or won't do. That said, when we talk about reasonable person, The big question is always, is that a reasonable person like the three of us? Is that a reasonable police officer, right? Because a reasonable police officer may not see death or serious bodily injury in the same way that a reasonable person does. So the big debate you see in jury instructions and in motions in limine is whether someone who's defending a police officer is allowed to say to the jury, look, you know, my my client's a A very sophisticated police officer has been an officer for a long time, and no reasonable police officer, or rather the prosecutor would say no reasonable police officer would believe this. He's been a police officer for a long time. He should know better. And the defense will say, wait a minute, it's a reasonable person standard, not a reasonable police officer standard. So that's where the debate is in the U.S. It's largely sort of tethered around that fairly nuanced point. But like in Germany, use that example again, there are different rules for police officers. They actually have more protections. And there's an active debate whether you're really defending yourself or you're defending the order, the public order. In other words, this goes back to Mm -hmm. our case earlier. In other words, I as a police officer, when someone attacks me, am I defending myself or am I defending like the order because he's attacking essentially the state by attacking me as a police officer? So those are fairly nuanced points. I mean... When I talked earlier about the German like way of looking at these things, if you go to an American textbook, right, your, your standard issue criminal law, you know, Paul Robinson's criminal law, you'll find, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 pages about self-defense. 20 pages if it's got really big font and a couple of pictures. <laughs> Not, it's typically really short summary. Here are the five elements. Here's provocation. Here's, you know, castle doctrine, maybe a case, that's it. Typical German... Criminal law textbooks are first of all multi-volume. I I counted it actually. I counted the pages. I did like I looked at like ten of these things, all of which cost essentially a fortune to buy any one of them, and they are on average two hundred to two hundred and fifty pages in length. Just on self-defense law, like about the same amount of pages on everything else, but they analyze, you know, every aspect of it, the moral. The values, you know, is self defense really about defending the self or the state, or is it a hybrid? That's the current thinking, it's a hybrid. But until, you know, 30 years ago, it was all about defending the state. So when I was defending myself from an assault, I was really defending the legal order more than myself as Marcus, you know, myself. Now, a lot of what are viewed as progressive, I think they're, it's, It's the correct way to view it. Say, look, that may be true that you're protecting the state, but you're also protecting yourself. I mean, that's what self-defense is all about, right? In Germany, it's called Notwehr, section 32 of the criminal code. Notwehr means uh, essentially defense when there's need, right? So that's a little different than self-defense. It's defense Mm -hmm. when there's need, uh, need to defend yourself. And so, you know, it's interesting, again, if you're kind of geeking out on this in a way that I did for a long time, it's really fascinating to read these German Professors and their different takes on it, because unlike in the U.S., where we look at case law and we look at statutes, in the German system, the views of the of the they're called to call the which means like the prevailing or majority opinion of academics, really matters. I mean, it's it's like one of the big pillars of their law. So right. persuading someone, the other folks over to your side, and then having all the textbooks sort of agree with a view that you hold is like a major victory in, in, in German academia.
0: Yeah, and if when I see. People citing law review articles and hornbooks and briefs on the side of the pond. I uh, usually roll my eyes. Jen, you look like you have a question?
1: I do. We've been talking so far about the perception, you know, the perception mm-hmm. of America in America, the perception of those abroad and how they view these issues. But what's the reality look like as it compares? You know, because obviously, our system of criminal laws. Our laws in general are intended to either incentivize or disincentivize behavior. So, what's actually happening? What is the behavior? How does our violent crime compare to theirs, and which system of laws is working better?
2: <laughs> well, that's a big that's a big one, Jen. Um, I'll, I'll try to do a first gloss and let smarter people come up with a true answer on crime statistics. You know, one of the challenging parts when you look at international crime statistics is how much you can believe them. So if you look at China and and look at their crime statistics, they're about as believable as their COVID statistics, right? No one ever died in China of COVID or whatever they said for a while. They're just not credible. Same is true for Russia. uh, Same is true for uh, North Korea. I mean, there are a lot of places, as you can see, there's a theme here, totalitarian dictatorships or, or, or oligarchies, where the statistics are just not, like, legit, so we have no idea how our crime stats compare to theirs, and they often will also exclude you know, political, essentially, offenses versus apolitical, like what common crime. On self-defense law, I'm real comfortable with our laws. I mean, I really am. Again, we can have a long debate about gun control, and I think I'm a little bit, I have mixed views on, on that topic that probably both sides will find objectionable. At least that's what I've found in my writing about it. You know, I guess you're, you're doing something right when both sides tell you you're wrong, but I think our self-defense laws are totally defensible. I think they're, even though they're not grounded in a whole lot of you know very stout sort of analytical gear, I think actually the final outcome of them is, is not bad. Again, what makes our crime stats crazy is our murders and violent crimes using firearms. Statistical reality is that we are facing an epidemic of crime and we gotta figure out how to, how to deal with it. By international comparisons, you know, it depends where you look. You know, you look in South America, we're, we've got like almost no crime compared to a lot of South American countries.
0: Well, let's stick with, you know, apples to apples, Western Europe.
2: Yeah, Western Europe. I mean, Western Europe's crime rates are rising. So we really are talking about major metropolitan areas, crimes in major metropolitan areas. And again, guns can't be excluded from the conversation, right? I mean, it's guns with which people are killing each other. And so how do we keep the guns out of the hands of the people who are committing the crimes is the big question that's bedeviled law enforcement and, and civil liberties groups and, uh, uh, I mean, all sides of the political spectrum for a long time. And if I had the answer, I'd love to tell you, but I, I don't have the answer, unfortunately. But we've got to come together as a society and as a, as a legal profession and really take a really hard look at it because just pointing fingers which is what both sides are doing politically, is not getting anything done. So speaking
0: of pointing fingers, whenever self-defense comes up in high-profile cases, you constantly hear both sides screaming at each other about what's right and wrong, using air quotes. But you don't often hear either side stopping to ask why they believe what they believe. Why is this right? Why is this wrong? And a big part of your book discusses competing values surrounding self-defense. Talk to us a little bit about that. What are the primary themes, the themes of values?
2: Yeah, I mean, my my sort of the rule, the punchline of the book and the dissertation and the various law review articles I've written on this topic is that we need a value-centric dialogue. We need a, a common language with which to discuss self-defense cases. You can't just look at whether it's Zimmerman or Arbery or Rittenhouse or you name it, you can't just look at these cases and say, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, like they, they, right. they're, they're, there's a, there's they're, a they're conversation. Yelling, they're yelling yeah.
0: conclusions at each other and, that's and, and not right. speaking to each other.
2: And you can't persuade someone. If, if someone just tells you it's right. this, well, good luck trying to convince them otherwise. Only if you have sort of a common shared language can you really kind of get anywhere. And so kind of the seven different values that I – articulate in the book and I try to kind of disentangle. That's why I talk about disentangling the ancient right. And I'll go through real quick again. I'm not trying to get folks too much, but I think they're pretty important because they also also apply to a lot of other laws. And that is number one, right? reducing societal violence to the monopoly of force. That's the argument that police should be protecting people, not people. You hear that argument once in a while, like, hey, why didn't the police should be handling these matters? We shouldn't just become vigilantes and start blowing people away when they kind of look at us funny. And so that's one value. It's not the only value. It's one, one of seven. So I think in almost every case, we should look at it and say, hey, how does this result you know, either help or hurt what's argued as the monopoly, Max Weber term, the monopoly of force? Again, people uh, on the right will disagree with me and say, no, there is no monopoly of force of the government. We are all born with the natural right to defend ourselves. To that, I'd say, yeah, you're, you're right, but listen to the other values I've got to talk about. So the monopoly of force is one value. Another one is the presumptive right of the attacker to life. I do think that even people who attack other people, whether they're doing so innocently or because they have criminal intent, we should have a presumption that they have a right to life. Now I say presumption, I had a friend of mine, she's like, what do you mean presumption? Everyone has a right to life. Like, no, you don't have a full on all the time right to life. It's presumed, it's predicated on you not becoming, for example, a deadly threat to other people, right? right? So, but we still have to protect attackers. So that's another one. The third one, I think the most controversial one, I think the most interesting one is equal standing, right? That when a person commits a crime, you always hear people say, look, I feel violated. I've never been the same. I, could, I was always scared. I felt like even when someone cuts you off in traffic, right? Why do we get so mad? Like I get really mad when someone rides up on a shoulder. That, particularly when I come back to Chicago, uh, when I when someone rides up on the shoulder and and just boom comes in front of me, just because they feel like it. Now it's not going to slow me down. It causes me no tangible harm, but emotionally it really pisses me off. And the reason is that we in the public sphere all have an expectation of equal standing. So whether you're Bill Gates or the president of the United States, you don't get to cut in line uh, at the supermarket, right? Uh, And and that, even though you may get to cut in line in healthcare and having safer cars and everywhere else, but in the public sphere, we expect, you know, that's why people get so mad when they see corruption in the judicial system, because we expect equal standing, everyone has has a right. And so when I defend myself against a, a criminal, I am protecting my equal standing among other things. If I'm protecting myself against a madman or a person or a child, that person isn't really threatening my equal standing because they don't really know what they're doing. They're kind of like an unguided missile. So that's number three. Number four, the one that everyone talks about, defender's autonomy, right? When I use self-defense, I am defending my autonomy, not just my body but also my right to act and do and go where I want to go. I don't have to avoid certain places. I can live my life freely, and that's my autonomy. And so if you attack me, yes, you're attacking my body. That's part of my autonomy, but you're also attacking other more intangible rights. The fifth value is primacy of the legal system. Again, the presumption that the legal system should resolve conflicts, not people, applies particularly in in property crimes, that we shouldn't take the law into our own hands, basically. Then the sixth one sounds the same, but it's not legitimacy of the legal order. In other words, we cannot have decisions like that German apple thief case that talked about that, in my opinion, delegitimize the legal order. Because Mm -hmm. the one thing that any functioning criminal justice system has and has to have is buy-in by the people. You can try to do it in the totalitarian way by just forcing people to do what you want them to do by threat of death and public execution, but it never really works. You have to have the buy-in. So when we treat certain minority groups badly, we risk delegitimizing the legal order in their mind in their eyes. When we come up with crazy results, either results that disallow self-defense when it should be allowed or vice versa, we risk delegitimizing the legal system. So that's another factor we should be considering. And then the last one is another one that we all talk about. So deterrence, right? Deterring the attacker. So you know, both specific deterrence like when you attack me and I defend myself, you're not going to do it again and also general deterrence, deterring sort of the general category of people who might commit crimes or or launch attacks. And so those seven values, I mean, there have to be others that are equally important. So I'm not saying that these are the only values or the best values. They're the best I could come up with. And as far as I know, no one else is ever other than, I think there's one other guy who talks about like two or three values. But I think each one of these is arguably implicated in every single self-defense case. So we could talk about Arbery, or we could talk about Alba, and we could go through these seven and figure out, okay, of these seven, which ones actually matter here? And then of those, let's four, or whatever there are that are left, we can say, why should this one value be prioritized over these others? You know, why should we allow a person to kill another person just so that because they were trespassing on their area and committing a crime there? And then we can have a real, meaningful, substantive dialogue over what our laws should be. And I think, again, that applies to self-defense law. It applies to laws well above and beyond self-defense. In other words, I think a value-based sort of dialogue about the criminal justice system generally is what we need so that we stop just speaking in platitudes. I mean, when I hear politicians right. talk about you know criminal law, when I, half the time when I hear professors and practicing lawyers talk about the criminal law, you know, it sees sound bites. Maybe that's the necessity. Yeah. We don't all have this opportunity to speak as much as we're doing now about these topics, but it's distressing, frankly, to see that.
0: Yeah, criminal law, especially, it tends to be passed in reactionary fits and starts. That's a good place for us to take a break. We'll be right back with stranger and legal fiction. <laughs>
1: Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software?
0: And we're back with Stranger and Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. They're pretty simple. Jen and I have done some research. We found one real law out there uh, that's strange and probably shouldn't be real. We've made another one up or found one that's thankfully been repealed. And we're going to quiz Marcus and each other to see who can distinguish strange real fact from fiction. You guys ready? Ready.
1: Are you going first?
0: No, Jen, you go first.
1: All right. All right. I'll go first. Okay, I don't remember who, who won last time. I feel like I remember Marcus being successful at this game. Um, so we'll see who, who gets this one. So the first is a Providence, Rhode Island law, potentially real, potentially fake. In Providence, Rhode Island, it is illegal to sell toothpaste and a toothbrush to the same customer on a Sunday. That's the first proposed law. The second is a Illinois law, specifically a city ordinance in Galesburg, Illinois. There is an ordinance that prohibits, quote unquote, fancy bike riding in Galesburg, Illinois. So that means anything not standard bike riding with your hands off the handlebars, feet not on the pedals or any kind of acrobatic bike riding that you could potentially be doing. So law in Galesburg that prohibits fancy bike riding, which is right, real. This is, and which is fake. This
0: is so okay, so either Rhode Island likes promoting bad breath on Sundays or Galesburg
2: has a thing against showing off on bicycles. This is tough,
0: Marcus, what do you
2: think? Hey, shout out to the Galesburg Electric Open tennis tournament. At least back in the 80s they had it. I think Galesburg is onto something fancy bike riding I can see a public I'll, I'll go through my seven value value based analysis here <laughs> this is the perfect
1: uh, time <laughs> i mean it's a it's
0: a legitimacy issue right I think right it, there
2: it is I mean selling toothpaste I mean God knows there's some crazy laws out there. I remember doing an article for Dave Eggers might magazine on all the crazy laws that we have. I have not run into that one. So my my answer, first and final, will be that Galesburg, home of the Galesburg Electric Tennis Tournament, is the not fake, which is to say the real law.
1: John, what's your guess?
2: Uh,
0: you know, usually I like going the other way just to keep things spicy, but I feel like that's just, I don't think That one could be invented. Like, Jen, I know you. Who would think that fancy bike riding? I mean, that takes a lot of imagination, and I don't want to take any credit away from you. So if I'm wrong about this, I owe you a preemptive apology, but I'm going to say the Galesburg one is real.
1: I like to think of myself as a creative person, but I'm not that creative. Um, You're actually, you're both right. You're both right here. The real law is the ordinance in Galesburg, no fancy bike riding. It's just Um, too strange not to be real. I use the term fancy, but it's actually called trick riding. That is. Oh, that would have
2: made it even easier. Yeah, yeah. That's
1: why I decided to make it a little spicier. Um, But the funny thing is that whenever I go to come up with my quiz for this game, I'm always like going onto these. I start by going onto one of these blogs that talks about like dumblaws.com or whatever they are. Mm -hmm, And the Providence, Rhode Island one is like. On a lot of those sites, it's believed to be a real dumb law on the books, but I forgot which. It's, just,
0: it's an echo chamber. Site debunked I've done, it, but
1: it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's an echo chamber. It's all over the internet. I think like Politifact did a search and found that it appeared on those like dumblaw.com sites over six hundred and fifty times as being like a purported dumb law on the books, but there's no citation for it and. To their research knowledge, it's never actually been a law on the books, so that would be the fake one. And the trick riding in Galesburg is the real law there. So good job, to both. see That
2: that is where the <laughs> uh, the French principle of desuetude should come in. So now I'm going to turn the table. Tell us, and you, doctor. Know, I'm, yeah, so yeah, doctor. <laughs> Dr. Funk, I know, I love it too. Um, that really is a great DJ yeah, name, by the way. Yeah, but if I ever actually introduce myself, though, as doctor, I really, I think, please don't check me, because uh, it, I, it, that's a little much. But um, desuetude, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but is this principle, it's in European law, that if a law is not enforced, it essentially loses its force, in other words, a mm-hmm. law like fancy, you know, bike riding—if they never, or in the last fifty years have never enforced it, and then they find this one fancy rider that they're trying to get, and they enforce it—that essentially renders the law null and void. You know, in, in other words, use it or lose it. I guess is the way to yeah. look at it. That's I think you made this
1: same reference the last time we. See, that's what I was game. worried about.
2: But I, I was, think you know, our
1: listeners. Uh,
2: yeah, they're they're could like, "Wow, this guy.
1: To <laughs> this
2: guy's got like one good idea. He's got like a it. playbook." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: One trick pony here. No, I'm just kidding. No, I can see this. this, It applies to a lot of these, though. Yeah, I can see this
2: conversation triggering such a simple idea in my mind again. And again, if I ever am lucky enough to be invited for for a three-peat, I'm sure I'll bring up to one more time. But uh, yeah. You got to complete the trifecta. Uh,
1: You're going to be like our Alec Baldwin on SNL, just like coming back every fifth episode of the show now.
0: uh (laughs) Uh-huh. think of a lot of jokes with that reference, but let's move on. Yep. <laughs> you know, all right. And Jen, to your example, that's why I always, whenever I find one of those websites, I start there as well, but then I go to the town's ordinances and I right. search I search them and more than three quarters Shepherd of the time eyes. they end up being so just, bogus. You, gotta
1: just, you, go, you go deep on all right. nexus, nexus.
0: Option number one, in Glendale, California, it's illegal to drive in reverse. Option number two, in Atlanta, Georgia or anywhere in Georgia. It's illegal to live on a boat for more than 30 days per year. Marcus,
2: what do you think? Hmm. I mean, again, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this concept of uh, desuetude. I'm guessing if the Glendale law is true, they don't enforce it a whole lot because I'm guessing there are a lot of scoff laws violating it. The living on a boat part, I mean... We used to have a boat in the harbor there in Lake Michigan, and uh, it's almost like a vagrancy law of sorts. I mean, there are some guys on there who essentially live on their boat. I can see why that would be I, I, have,
0: I have friends who do that, yeah, some I of my see. favorite friends. <laughs> that's,
2: that's sort of, yeah, like who, Crockett and Stubbs. Which one of those guys? Didn't they live on a boat? Remember uh, uh, Miami Vice? Didn't the main guy, uh, Don Johnson, live on a boat in the in that show? I don't know.
0: I, I was in like yeah, diapers. So too when young that, you know, you're dating yourself on that one, <laughs>
2: I'm sorry. You know, I'm just going to. I'm just. I mean, I don't think Is sure that I'd the line. one
1: with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's the reason. I'm just
2: going to say no reverse because I can imagine back in the day, reverse was like real crazy and people getting into crashes and someone came up with a law that they never enforced. Although the boat one is interesting too, but I can't see a whole state. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick with that one. I'm probably wrong about that one. That's my little one. I'm throwing my, my, my mattresses out already here to catch my fall.
0: Jen, what do you think?
1: Hmm. I think I'm going to have to agree with Marcus because that was what my instinct was telling me. It, my instinct first told me it would be impossible for the reverse one to be a law. So based on the rules of this game and how you know history is our guide – I'm going to go with with that being the real one. That and no just before you reverse. give the
2: answer, John, I'm not going to show how tricky I am. I'm going to reverse myself. And here's why. Tax <laughs> collection. I can see why on a boat, because you could say like, oh, I don't live in this jurisdiction or I just came in from that jurisdiction. If you're living on a boat, I could see how you could engage in maybe some sort of clunky tax evasion. So just to keep it spicy, as you guys said, I'm going to go... For the boat. I'm switching but my you boat. Said, you
0: said your prior answer was final.
2: No, I didn't. I mean, that was my yes, final prior prior. Yes, prior. you did. did it, was, it, was, it was... We have it on... Too bad we don't have <laughs> it on tape. Yes, We don't have it on tape. Well,
0: I'll tell you what, your last second doubting of yourself paid off this time. The <laughs> Georgia law is real, section 125288 288 b 8 of the state code, yes. which specifically includes houseboats, perhaps for that tax reason, Marcus, although it allows citizens to apply for extensions of time Interestingly, it doesn't say what grounds those extensions will be granted on, so I can imagine that would be subject to a lot of abuse, but that is the real law. To Jen's earlier comment, the Glendale-California law comes up on a lot of lists as being a stupid or silly law, but when I went to Glendale's website, I found it nowhere in their municipal ordinances.
2: Dang, this is a good day for me. You guys are starting (laughs) my week off right.
0: Marcus, my friend, once again, it has been a real pleasure having you on the pod. Thank you for teaching us something about this area of the law. I suspect we won't see an end to the headlines about self-defense cases or claimed self-defense cases, but hopefully now we'll all be a little bit better educated about the law underlying those stories and our opinions one way or another will be better informed for it. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much, John. Jen, always a pleasure to be with you guys. Look forward to a possible three-peat.
0: I also want to thank our co-host and executive producer, Jen Byrne, as well as Adam Lockwood on sound and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the Bar, all one word. Our email address is podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, iHeart, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the Bar.